unbeknownst to us, there was a Talib hiding behind a big rock down this creek line that we were sort of clearing, waiting for us in ambush. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Do often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to you screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Ryan Wilson is a veteran of the Special Air Service Regiment. Over the course of his military career, he deployed to Malaysia, the Solomon Islands and Afghanistan, as well as training overseas. Today, he is the General Manager of Snapper Distillery and is the WA State Manager for the veterans' charity, Wandering Warriors. Ryan spoke with Angus Horden about his career in Special Forces, life after service and reflected on the difference they made in Afghanistan. I'm Angus Horden, and today I'm speaking with Ryan Wilson. Ryan, thanks for joining us on Life on the Line for 2022. Thanks, Angus. Thanks for having me. Ryan, can you tell us about your early childhood, please? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a a small country town just south of Perth uh, called Waruna. Went to school there and stayed there till I was about 17. Yeah, I always sort of had a bit of an interest in the military growing up, but uh, there was not much exposure to it in the country there. Yeah, I was a bit of a rat bag at school, sort of had no direction, always sort of in trouble. Uh, and, and, you know, that sort of naturally, you know, fed me towards the military, I guess, to kind of sort myself out. With your schooling, when did you finish and where, and where did you go after school? Uh, in Waruna, we only got up to year 10 and then I had to go to Pinjarra, so the next, the next town along for year 11 and 12. And there wasn't many of us who actually did that, but I hadn't decided what I wanted to do yet, so I actually went and studied, um, I think it was called TE back then, like the your tertiary entrance exam to get into uni in Pinjarra, and then I left uh, when I was 17 and went to university up in Perth. I did my undergrad degree in political science. I did a, a well, that was one of the majors. I did a triple major, so political science, Asian studies, and a security and counterterrorism studies major. That's a a pretty interesting um, course you're doing there. I mean, had you thought of either going into politics or going into something, you know, in Asia or anti-terrorism at that stage? At that stage, yeah, probably not politics. I was just, uh, I was interested in it, but had no aspirations of being a politician. But uh, definitely in the military or in the, you know, intelligence services or something like that had always sparked my interest. And how did you find, you know, if, for example, you're a bit of a rebel at school and getting in trouble, how did you find the freedom of uni and the new campus sort of thing? It worked a lot better for me. You know, there was no one there over my shoulder telling me what to do. And when I didn't do something, it showed in my work. So it showed in my grades. So it was totally 100% up to me at this point now, you know, to, to get the work done and get good grades. So that kind of made me pull my finger out and... uh you know, really uh, buckle in, you know, get down and, and do the work. So I, it actually worked better for me. 
So, Ryan, when did you start with the military? In 2002, I joined the Army Reserve. So whilst I was at university, at Murdoch University. And that's a bit of a funny story because I actually had applied and got all the way to the final round of interviews to go to ADFA as an officer. And then at the final round, I uh, was told not suitable uh, and you know recommended to join the Army Reserve to get some experience and things like that. So I went and joined the Army Reserve, the local infantry battalion here in Perth, uh, 16 battalion. And then soon pretty much realised I much preferred being a soldier than an officer, so I never applied for uh, ADFA or RMC or anything like that again. And do you have any family history in the military beforehand? Not directly. I mean, uh, have you know, granddad, granddads on both sides of the family that served, you know, in World War II, and great granddad that served in World War One, as as I imagine almost every family uh, has, but no direct uh, link. And how did you find just being in an infantry unit? How did you find the basic training? Because I had a bit of time on my hands. I did, I volunteered to do the full-time training. So, and that's something that's sort of always a part of me is I, I, I never wanted to do anything sort of half-baked. So when the option came to, you could either do the reserve training or go to Singleton for three months and do the full-time infantry training, that appealed to me more. I wanted to see, like I could do, yeah, I was good enough to pass that course. So I ended up doing that and was, you know, the only choco or reservist on the on the course. So uh, that added extra sort of complexities to the relationship with the people on the course. But um, got through it and passed it, which was at the time I was only young, um, was a pretty big achievement for for me. And then yeah, came back to settle into sort of like back to uni and and reserve work. In hindsight, that's a really smart move because. For you to get that experience, you probably would have needed three years of the Army Reserve, you know, two weeks away or a weekend here. And to come up to speed so quickly was really, really good for good for you. And, and then when you slotted back in, you would have been a real asset to the unit as opposed to just one of the guys getting taught sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. And, you know, I, I remember in the reserves and it's just a, that's a, it's the way the reserves is set up or it was back then was there would be guys who have been in the reserves for three four years and still hadn't completed their infantry training mm. so they're senior soldiers but not qualified so it's it was a it's a bit of a weird setup but i was also very lucky that as soon as i left singleton actually our uh, unit over here went to malaysia with the rifle company butterworth for four months or something in in, in butterworth so i was actually i came straight off singleton and then jumped on that trip and went away for another four months um, of training over there, which was eye-opening for, you know, a 19-year-old kid. So tell us about your experience up in Butterworth because, you know, it's a different environment that has been a very important base for us up there. I mean, we've been running P3 Orions for years, you know, running surveillance into the Indian Ocean, et cetera, from that base. But uh, what were your main tasks there? This was very much a training well, training, I won't say deployment, but training trip, I guess. It was... It, you know, the tasks were really up to the OC um, and, and what he wanted to get out of that four-month block. We did a lot of training around Butterworth in the in the jungles there, and that it was really eye-opening for me. I'd uh, never really been exposed to that kind of terrain, uh, and I found it extremely difficult, not only trying to, you know, and it gave me a deep respect, sorry, too, for, like, say, Vietnam and, and, and conflicts like that in the jungle. 
where I just remember sitting in the jungle going, I am absolutely miserable and this isn't even, there is no enemy out there and this is hard. Like this is, it's just hard living in the jungle, let alone having to worry about there's someone out there sneaking around trying to kill you. So, you know, that, that sort of was my first exposure to jungle warfare and it, yeah, it sort of stuck with me for the rest of my career as well. Every time I got exposed to you know, Solomon Islands later, as well in the jungle. I mean, good on you for being honest about that. I remember Alex and I interviewed a lot of World War II guys, and I remember heroes from Tobruk and Alamein, you know, fighting in the Western Desert, coming back and saying that the New Guinea jungle, you know, scared the shit out of them. You know, like they hated it because they were used to space, and there is no space in the jungle, as you as you well know. Our trip to Malaysia was my first exposure to sort of Southeast Asia as a young fella. And that was eye-opening in itself. So that then sparked a real interest to see more of the region. And then when I came back to Murdoch and I started doing the Asian studies major and specialising in uh, Indonesian language, you know, that, that was kind of, I kind of fell into that as well because actually I thought, you know, I want to study another language and I inquired about what languages were available at the uni and I was thinking maybe some European language but uh, actually we didn't offer any and then so the options were you know Mandarin, Bahasa, Indonesia at the time so I thought I'll do Mandarin you know I didn't really know much about it and I went into one class and then soon realized it wasn't it you know it was incredibly difficult it wasn't for me and someone sort of suggested oh maybe you should try Bahasa Indonesia it's a bit it's more phonetic uh, language like ours so a bit easier so I did that and then and that's how uh, combined with that trip to Malaysia it sort of really then started to spark an interest in the region uh, and yeah a, an opportunity came up to go and study in Indonesia through a program called Achichis. Uh, I can't actually remember what the acronym stands for but it was basically where a bunch of Australians from all different unis go over and study at this particular university in Yogyakarta called um Universitas Gajamada. And yeah, so we just went there and, and enrolled in uh, normal subjects, I guess. There wasn't anything in particular we had to study. The goal was to learn how to speak Bahasa. So you now I enrolled in a few, few units. Uh, we also had some language study, specific studying units on its own, but the ultimate goal was to immerse yourself into the university life in, in Indonesia. You know, I lived in a small boarding room with all other university students and um, yeah it was a real real experience and I understand you tried to teach them a bit of Aussie rules when you were there I did yeah I ended up uh, somehow ran into these other expats who were living in Jakarta and they they had this uh, Aussie Aussie rules expat football team called Jakarta Bintang so now I like playing football so I was like yeah no worries and um, you know fly down to Jakarta and play footy with them and and everything and then when my time came up to finish studying in Indonesia, I um, they sort of said, oh, look, we're, we want to start this you know, development program and we're looking for someone to teach football to Indonesian students at schools and stuff. So I said, oh, yeah, no worries, I'll do that. So I moved to Jakarta and then started working for them and going around to different schools, basically doing like Auskick and, and teaching, teaching football, yeah. I remember you saying before how the earthquake in Indonesia had a big impact on your life. That incident definitely had a huge impact on me. Um, I remember it being probably about 5.30 in the morning and just awoke to, you know, the world just sort of crumbling around us and um, quickly ran outside. And at that time, it wasn't long after the 
tsunami in, in you know, uh, Thailand and Arche and that. And, and Jog Jakarta has actually a big volcano, active volcano right next to it. So obviously we ran out and we thought, and the volcano was active at that time, but we thought it erupted, but it actually wasn't. Um, it was an earthquake itself. But, um, you know, and, and that flattened a lot of the city. I think about 6,000 people were killed and hundreds of thousands, you know, um, displaced. And, and you know, it was just horrific. And, you know, the moments after as well, were pretty bad because because it was just after that tsunami people started to naturally feel uh that that was going to happen again so people started to flee the city and and you know it just became chaos with people running and trampling everyone and um trying to get out but uh no tsunami came or anything like that but then we started the cleanup process so you know we we sort of banded together and we were we were there obviously before any sort of NGOs or, or assistance could come. So we just decided to help as much as we could, you know, um, whether it be helping in hospitals or, or helping go through rubble and, and rebuild or, or anything we could do really. Brian, can you tell us um, after you sort of left Indonesia, what happened to you then? Because I know it's not long after that, you know, you're then deploying to the Solomons. Yep. So I decided to come back to Australia, I think around 2006, 2007, something like that. And then, yeah, the, the reserve battalion again was still, I was still sort of part of the reserve battalion. I'd had some time off, but I was, I got back into that and they were now gearing up again to go away on a, a trip op, operation anode to the Solomon Islands. So again, it was, I think the re, this time the regular battalions were so busy. They were now not only giving sort of, reserve battalions the chance to do RCB trips. We were now doing, you know, op anode trips generally over the Christmas period again. But yeah, I thought this was a great opportunity. So I stuck my hand up for that and got yeah, got the opportunity to go over. That must have been interesting when you're up there. Did you get to go and look at, you know, some of the military sites of World War Two? Yeah, we did. We did we did a bit of, you know, touring around and, you know, there's old tanks still sitting there and it's a bit surreal to see a battlefield you know, that seems quite unremarkable. Mm. Um, but then when you hear about the history of the battle and there's whole divisions and, you know, thousands of people involved, you can't really, you, you just can't fathom it, to be honest. Yeah. And Ryan, it's not lost on us at this moment, the strategic importance of the Solomons and the Chinese setting up bases there and that sort of destabilising the Pacific. Even when, when we were there back then, I, I remember thinking to myself, geez, there's a lot of the local businesses were all Chinese. They were already starting to establish themselves, you know, in the private sector throughout Solomon's. They were, they were the ones leading most of the markets and the trade. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's not surprising to me, to be honest, that this, it's gone down this path. You yeah, know, good, good observation for someone who's actually been there. Ryan, um, where did the time in the Army Reserve then lead you into the SAS? Being in Western Australia, you you kind of grow up. Being in Perth, you grow up with the SAS sort of on on your doorstep there. But and then you know, I always sort of glorified them and, and seen them as sort of like gods, and they were the you know the ultimate of soldiers and and human beings, and and you know, sort of really, you know, as a kid, wanted to be, always wanted to be like them. My desire to to sort of do selection. I had a number of drivers. It was, like I mentioned before, I always wanted to see if I could do the hardest thing that was out there, the toughest thing, just to see if I was sort of capable of it. So that was a driver. Another one was, you know, and it's always been a driver in my life, is for some reason like to prove people wrong. And this happened when I was at school. 
as well, I remember being a rat bag at school and, and a teacher sort of, you know, basically saying, yeah, you're not going to amount to anything and you wouldn't be able to handle it university. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go and do university. So I went and did a four-year degree just to spite him, but not really. But, you know, it, 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 it really inspired me to, to go, well, you know what, I can do it. And the same sort of thing, there was a few... You know, I started talking about SAS and selection and a few people, you know, like, uh, yeah, you're just a reservist. You'd never be able to do it. Don't worry, blah, blah, blah. And that just spurred me on that little bit more to really give it a crack. And the Solomon Islands was um, where I kind of decided to do it. And it was a great opportunity. I started training there for it. So, and that was, um, had a lot of time to do that over there. So can you talk us through the actual selection process? Because it is a very daunting and a very challenging process. It's not for the lighthearted. You know, there's the initial application process with all the aptitude testing and the, and the, and the sort of paper selection, so to speak, which it is what it is. Uh, and then I, I'm not sure what it's like now, but then we had to do a SF uh, sort of barrier test, barrier entry test, I think it's called. And, and you know, this was a, I remember mine was 15K webbing run in under 90 minutes. A pack march, 20k pack march. I can't remember the times, and there was a few other swim. I can't, I can't recall exactly, but it was um, all physical in nature. But it was to really just, I guess, it was just a barrier because we had so many applicants to to cut it down a bit, and then that sort of qualified you, I guess, to start selection, which was the 21 days or three weeks uh, in 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 Perth. Of hell. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I was I was 23 or something, and and I always say this is that I was young and naive. I think that's what got me through. <laughs> I didn't know any better. As you say, you don't know what you don't know. I appreciate the big runs with the packs and the you know the webbing and and, and the ammo etc. Can you talk about how they sort of try to mentally select you or, or grill you type thing? For sure. So on selection, it's all pretty much silent running so you know you don't really get told you obviously don't get told if you're doing anything right everything you do is wrong but there's no real yelling and carrying on and in your face and and blah blah, blah. it's it's more very much you know someone will just come up to you and be like and, and this is something I used to do when I was in instructing as well <laughs> would be like you know if you had the choice between you know your compass your rifle or your radio and you had to pick one what would you choose and you know people would go oh, I'd pick mine rifle and you go oh okay so you wouldn't pick your radio and then walk off and so there's no real right or wrong answer it's just putting doubt in their mind that and then they go and keep walking and they're sticking through their mind and you know it starts playing on them so there was just little mind tricks like that and then there was it's based to make you feel like you're not going to pass so I remember getting to a point where I was just like oh I have struggled on every activity there is no way I'm going to get selected and so I just thought, well, I'm here now. I might as well finish the course. At least, you know, that's something I can hang my hat on. You know, and then I got to the end and got selected, which I, I was super surprised. So, well done. Well done. I mean, selection is just the first sort of barrier, first hurdle. And then when you talk to anyone who's been through the uh, SAS training, it's uh, you soon forget about selection because it's the next course that's hard and then the next one. And not maybe not as physically, but definitely mentally. And, uh, you know, the stress throughout the whole reinforcement cycle, which was about 18 months, uh, you know, just course after course, where at any moment you, you fail one of those courses, you can be sent back to your unit. Or, uh, so it was that on constant stress and, and striving to perform uh, and survive, basically. It, it, was a, it was a very difficult 18 months, I guess. But then 
the, the people you go through Rio with are your, the closest people you you know you have in the regiment, even if you go to different squadrons. So so got through that eighteen months training and then got posted to I went to three squadron. And what, and what was three squadron doing at that stage? We went straight on team, so on on sort of counterterrorism, uh, and then I started my deployments. So let's go through the first deployment then. Around two thousand eleven. Um, early 2011, I think. And that was, I think, SOTG 15. My first uh, experience overseas uh, with the SAS and very much still a rookie, very much still trying to um, cement my spot in the team and in the, in the squadron. And yeah, I remember when I first got to the squadron and, and the boys had just come back from a tour. God, I, I just didn't like... You know, guys were wounded and, you know, all this thing. And I just thought, oh, my God, what, what, you know, what have I got myself into? What's going on here? And, you know, you just, you just had to prove yourself, you know, as a soldier and as a good bloke through in the squadron. And, you know, so by that first tour, I was still very much unproven and uh, very much, you know, a rookie, so to speak. So but had some really good mentors, had some really good patrol commanders, really good lead-up training, felt confident, felt like, know what's going on and you know I was looking forward to really being you know and, and also a bit apprehensive to be like you know well this is am, am I how am I going to react because you don't really know how you're going to react in in combat so that was part of FE Alpha part of TUS for 66 so at that stage yeah we were doing sort of time sensitive targeting on um, high value individuals and, and things like that through all through Afghanistan. Yeah. And can you run through with the SAS at that stage? Were you still working in these small units? Yeah. I mean, we never really operated on these tasks. We never really operated less than a sort of troop, troop plus. We were still out there small. Yes. But um, probably be around 30 to 40, something like that. Yeah. Do you remember your first, you know, patrols? Yeah, first one was quite, nothing really happened. So it was a bit anti-climax. But the second one, I was actually involved in, um, like straight up involved in a, in a contact and just in the thick of it straight away. That was really, you know, a turning point for me as well. I remember sort of thinking, well, how do I feel about this? How do I, what, what are my feelings? And, and to be honest, at the time, probably, you know, it was just the training had, prepared us really well the brotherhood the with the with your mates talking it out that was just one day and then we, we we just did it day in day out and and you know you couldn't really dwell on what happened the day before so you got used to sort of controlling your emotions I guess uh and and yeah so you could continue this high tempo environment that trip was about four months four or five months I think we only did short tours like that because we were such high tempo and when you um came back did you feel that, um, I mean, how much time did you have off and, and what was the situation in sort of coming home? So coming home and then, yeah, I guess we had maybe a couple of months off before we started training again to go away. Well, it might not even been that much, to be honest, but it was a bit surreal coming home. There were certain little things that were difficult to adjust but, uh, back into society, I guess. So, uh, you know, things like over in Afghanistan, it was very structured life, I guess. Yes, it was dangerous and we were going out outside the wire and doing dangerous activities, but it was very structured. The mess was there. We didn't have to think about what we eat. We didn't have to think about bills. We didn't have to think about what we wore, to be honest. It was just, you wore uniform, you go, food's there, you eat, go to the gym, do your job. Yeah, it was simple in some aspects. 
And then coming home and all of a sudden now you got to think about what do you have for dinner? What are you wearing? What, you know, these little things, the bills are there and they start, they just become little stresses that you hadn't, you're not really used to. So, and that takes a while to just to adjust back into that kind of mentality. With your time in Afghanistan, and and I think you, you know, like you had a number of deployments there, which would you say would have been the more significant ones? All quite significant, to be honest. I mean, and they all had an impact on my life for various reasons. I think the most, if I had to say the most significant impact would have been the last tour I did uh, where Combat Assault Dog Fax was killed. I was involved in that and, you know, was trying to give CPR and everything to Fax to try and bring him around and, and whatnot, but unfortunately couldn't. And, you know, he sort of, he saved my life that day, mine and, and his handler's life. You know, we were definitely walking straight into an ambush if he wasn't there. That was really, and that's what sort of then I decided to devote the rest of my career to the dogs, I suppose, because up to that point I was a sniper and I was sort of going down that specialty. And then when that event happened, I, I sort of realised that's where I wanted to, to dedicate the rest of my career. Can you walk us through what happened that day? We landed and we got engaged immediately from once we landed. And then there's a, a, a bit of a firefight. And um, after I think there was a casualty and then we had to get a HLZ. We had to clear a helicopter landing zone. So myself and, and Fax and the handler walked off to go clear this uh, area for a helicopter landing zone. Unbeknownst to us, there was a Talib hiding behind a big rock down this creek line that we were sort of clearing, waiting for us in ambush. Uh, luckily, we had Fax and he went out front and we saw him sort of go past uh, where the Taliban was and then kick back in the wind, got him on the wind and come in and bit the guy, which then alerted us to his presence and we were able to take correct actions. But unfortunately, the guy, the Talib was able to shake, shake Fax off and shot him point blank and then... He was engaging Fax's handler and the tub in a really close sort of engagement. And that's when I was able to manoeuvre around onto sort of some high ground and get the better of him. So we lost the dog, but but did was the other guy taken down or? No, no. So no, he oh. was fine. Yeah. And he was, then he was saved by his dog, in other words. For sure. 100%. Yeah. We owe our mm. lives to that dog. So, mm. um, and then we proceeded to try and, you know, uh, save him, but he just. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was too too much. Yeah, that would have been a terrible thing to go through. Yeah, and you know we treated the dogs much like operators. Um, they were part of the family, just like anyone else. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a difficult loss. Other than that, obviously terrible situation with the dog. Any other memorable experiences? I got to you know, do a lot over there, see a lot of the country. I remember thinking some points like geez it's actually not it's actually quite a beautiful looking country from some of the you know when we're on top of a mountain or something like that and and it was just a bit surreal as well going through some of the valleys uh you know and, and seeing the villages there that you know haven't changed since i don't know thousand years yeah. like uh it's, it's close time yeah yeah it's uh it, it's very surreal and you know, it was very, very eye-opening and it's obviously had a huge impact on my life. In your um, deployments, can you recall perhaps any lighter or funnier moments that may have happened? I mean, not during my deployments, actually. I, I prepared some stuff for, uh, on some training exercises, but I can't, um, yeah, can't think of anything at the moment. I always found the training, you know, the lighter parts of life that you would get out of 
you know, with your mates, what funny things did you sort of come across? And then this goes back to actually before I went away and it was in 2010, got chosen with another guy to go to Canada actually for a month long trip with the, with JDF2 and train with them up in the Rocky mountains with some, uh, doing some high angle sniping and things like that. So it was a great opportunity, super excited. I'd never really been exposed to snow before. Uh, so it was somewhat underprepared when we got there. Plus it, it was meant to be summer, but it was still freezing cold up in the Rockies and in British Columbia. And the funny story is that uh, the mate who I went with, as we were packing our gear to go, I said, you know, I'll go to the deployment store and I'll get our cold weather gear. It's fine. Don't worry. You know, you got stuff to do. I'll, I'll get it and I'll give it to you over there. So I went to the deployment store and back then it was a bit like you go in and you, it's kind of like, oh, I'll have one of those, one of those. And, you know, you walk out with it and a trunk to fill it all with. And um, so went in and was like, oh, I need some cold weather, like puff gear, the, the big jackets and pants and stuff like that. So grabbed them all, put them in their little containers and then, I put them in my gear, flew over to Canada, and then we we out in the Rocky Mountains, setting up in our tent. And I'm like, "Well, here you go, mate. Here's your, uh, you know, puff gear." And he pulls out his pants, puts them on, fair enough. And then goes to pull out the next packet, and it's another set of pants. And I had, I, I thought I had actually checked that it was a jacket, but I brought him two sets of pants. And instead of, uh, so he he was not impressed at all. But luckily. <laughs> the Canadians had some spare gear and he ended up doing all right out of it. So yeah. not too bad, but he never, ever let me live that down. Yeah, that really. I, I, I set him up, but that trip was, that was really, really good because we, like we had no experience in the snow whatsoever. And I remember the Canadians giving us some snowshoes and we were going on a, a bit of a trek and, you know, we got dropped off by this helicopter and off they went. And then there's me and this other guy trying to put these snowshoes on things and, and we look up and they're gone and we, we hadn't even gone 10 metres. We didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. So it was, it was uh, it, there was a lot of funny, funny moments on that trip, yeah, for sure. It certainly gives importance to the saying, you pack your own shoot. You know yeah, I mean? for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You never rely yeah. on anyone. You always check nah, your own. He never trusted me again after that yeah. to pack his gear. And, yeah, and right, rightly so. Yeah. <laughs> With a mate like you, yeah. Uh, tell us about the special skills and training that you went in to become a sniper. And in particular, how incredibly patient you have to be. I'll be 100% honest with you. I, I didn't choose to be a sniper, to be honest. It was not something I ever really wanted to do. But I once I, I did enjoy it once I was doing it. But the way, the, how I got into it was when I first got to the squadron, pretty much on day one, they said, all right, sniper course starting. We need three people. And us, there was three rookies that rocked up on that day. And I went, right, you three, you're on it. We're like, okay, when's it start? And like today, boom, that was it. So that was, that was my start as a sniper and and so i then proceeded to do the two-month course two three-month course can't remember exposed to a whole new level of field craft and yeah patience like you said to you know really attention to detail and and you know to really do the job right you had to have really a good attention to detail and patience so you know i, I ne i'll never claim that i was like some american sniper or, or i was never really that good at it but I got through the course and, you know, then started to enjoy, actually enjoy the role a bit more once I did some more training and, you know, got to do that tour, trip to Canada and, and things like that. Did you actually get to use that skill in action? So on the first tour I did was 
uh, we did a lot of roles. I was part of like a, a, an Overwatch sniper team. So we did do a lot of up in the mountains, high Overwatch on the guys. I did use the weapons, but the furthest, it was mostly close combat, to be honest, a lot of the stuff. Because we would also be up in the helicopters doing aerial fire support and things like that. And then if we had to, we, we would land and assault as well. And, you know, so sometimes we were doing close combat with these large, larger sniper weapons. But so I never really, no, not, you know, can't claim to, uh, you know, have used them in, in your typical sense, like a sniper. So Ryan, can you tell us about your passion working with the dogs? It came from that event that happened in Afghanistan where Fax saved my life and, and Anna's life. And I sort of realised then that that's what I wanted to do. So I went back, I went back to the unit after one trip and, and sort of identified that's what I want to do and, and did the dog course, dog handling course. And that's when I got teamed up with my combat assault dog being Kenny who's um, still around now and still is in my backyard at the moment. And, you know, he's been with me for like over 10, 11 years now. So, and then I, I started with Kenny for the next sort of four years, I guess, as the dog handler in three squadron. And, and we did everything together. It was amazing. So, you know, anything that we did, I had to work out. And, and this was what all handlers had to do. You had to work out how to do it with your dog. So you know, my hat goes off to that dog. He's gone through a lot of things and, uh, things he probably didn't want to do, but he did them anyway. So it's definitely been a major part of my life. What, what sort of dog is Kenny? He's a Belgian Malinois. So they're the dogs that we use and and most sort of police and, and units, uh, military units use those now. Yeah, I've heard about those. I think they there's a breeder just in Sydney's western suburbs where they get them from or get a lot of them from. Here's a bit of a funny one, old Kenny, and I think we we're perfectly matched, to be honest, but he wasn't originally going to be selected because he, he's got a bit of a weird front leg. It sort of bows out a bit. So, uh, you know, he was sort of overlooked and, you know, but he had strong lines and he had uh, brothers, another brother, Coda. And yeah, uh, I can't remember. I think maybe his, his father was also in the, in, in the regiment dog. So he had good lines. So in the end, you know, we needed some dogs and um, they, they brought him in and, uh, and he, he ended up doing really well. I mean, Kenny was, uh, he was a, definitely a regiment sort of favourite. He was, he, no one could, you just couldn't dislike Kenny. He, he just always had this cheesy grin on his face and he, he always did, you know, he, he could work really hard and do amazing things. And then at the other end, he could do the most stupid thing you've ever seen. So he was, and I guess that's, you know, they say that, you know, the, the handler, the personality of the handler goes down the lead. I don't know, maybe it was, yeah, he was just sort of imitating me or maybe it was going both ways for us. But yeah. So a, a bit of a reflection of you, but then I can see you you wanting him with that sort of underrated status for the dog. You having felt people didn't give you full credit and you're proving them wrong with Kenny and yourself. Kenny's always been, he's always sort of tested me and uh, he, you know, we've bonded now and he won't leave me alone, but yeah, he won't leave my side. But to begin with, he, he was a very independent, strong dog and took a long time to bond with. So I remember the first time I got him out of the kennels and I think I was just fresh off the dog course and thought I was pretty good and knew what I was doing. And uh, so I went to take him for a walk or a run. And then those days, yeah, you just let him off lead and run around the base and we had a lot of space and as long as you keep control. Well, I let him off lead and then he just took off. He was gone <laughs> straight away. And He bowled like you. Yeah, and I, there was no way I was catching him. And he ran down across the oval and 
God, I, you know, I just started to see my career flash before my <laughs> eyes. And so I've chased him and I finally get down the oval. And luckily there was a, another one of our dog handlers on the oval who pulled him over and grabbed him. But uh, I don't know where he was going, but he was just going. So he, he took off, you know, and um, that, that was the, my introduction to Kenny. And that was the start of our, our relationships. <laughs> so Ryan, after all your experiences in Afghanistan, you then start some other training deployments. You mentioned previously you had spent some time in the Canadian Rockies, you know, around the British Columbia. Can you walk us through some of those experiences? Another uh, training deployment I did was actually to the UK, and that was with uh, with 22 SAS. So I got the ability to go over there and, and do some work with them. And, and when I got there, we went to Oman for six weeks um, to a training area there. So that was that was a very eye-opening and interesting experience as well working with uh, 22 and seeing how they did things differently to the way we did them particularly related to uh, vehicle mounted operation yeah we used the same sort of vehicles same weaponry and that so it was it was quite easy to sort of fit in it was just the differences in I guess personalities and and culture I know it doesn't sound like much difference between the UK and Australia but there you know it was quite different but then there were a lot of similarities too. It was, it was funny to see that, you know, we're all going through the same problems. We're all going through the same issues. You know, one, uh, one other funny little story was, um, you know, had the 50 cal machine gun, the Browning machine gun there that's on most of our heavy vehicles and taking it, pulling it apart and cleaning it and pulling the bolt apart. And, and it can become quite complex when you start pulling it all apart to give it a good clean. And then, uh, you know, then there's a room full of us, 22 SAS and myself. And I think there was a Canadian JDF2 guy. And then we're there all there scratching our heads, trying to work out how to put this thing back together. And we couldn't work it out. And I just remember thinking, I've done this before. <laughs> I've been through this at home with, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, eventually we worked it out. But, it, you know, it's just showing that, Whilst different unit, different different country, we're still there was still very much a lot of similarities and and through service life and things like that. So yeah, and that was a was a really good opportunity. Got to do some jumping over there, and you know with the guys, and and we did a, a big you know trek all around Oman. So it was really really interesting. And after that time, I understand you then went back to Indonesia again to study. Yeah, so actually that's probably the last thing I did sort of before I got out was. Um, an opportunity came up to go do an advanced language course because uh, I'd always been sort of going there a few times a year with work, doing training assistance and, you know, uh, helping out with exercises and, and whatnot and, and keeping up my language skill. And then so this opportunity came and it's something I always wanted to do. And it was, you know, so I definitely jumped at it, went to Jakarta uh, and then started studying at their language school in South Jakarta, which was really good, really cemented my language skills and you know, got to meet a lot of cool people. When you'd finished those studies, where did that take you then? Came back from Indonesia and then you know, went back to a squadron for a while uh, before I started to realise, you know, I think I want to do something else. I think now's the time to, you know, move on. If I, if I sort of hang around any longer, then, you know, I might be too old to start a new career, so to speak. So I thought now's a good time. And, you know, so that's why I started looking at getting out. Can you walk us through now how you've left the military and you're, and you're now transitioning into a new stage in your life? When I got out, I, I sort of had a bit of time on my hands and um, 
I'd sort of set myself up, okay, I'd done an MBA whilst I was still in. So I had some more study behind me. And I had some time on my hands and I had a natural interest in in whiskey. So I I approached the local whiskey distillery here in Perth, which was Whippersnapper Distillery, and I I love their whiskey. So I just emailed them actually on their their website and the info at Whippersnapper sort of address. And then within 20 minutes, the the head distiller and co-founder, Jimmy McEwen, gave me a call and was like, yep, come in, let's, you know, you can come in and we'll we'll work something out. And because I kind of just said, Oh, look, I've got time in my hands. I, I love what you're doing. I'd love to learn some more, you know, volunteer or do whatever. So I came in and then just started helping out here, you know, mopping floors or generally just getting in the way of everyone, to be honest. But just, uh, you know, it gave me another uh, purpose, I guess, and another uh, reason to get out of bed in the morning. And, you know, I'll always be uh, forever thankful for, for Jimmy and the guys for giving me that opportunity. You know, and that, that sort of developed over time, got to know them. They got to know me more and more of my skills and my background. And then you know, eventually they offered me a role in business development, which I did for about, uh, you know, just under a year, I think. And then, you know, just recently been given the general manager role. Well, I mean, that, that's a fantastic um, story. They've appreciated all your great personal ability and in particular, all that good training that's, that, you, you know, the army has invested in you is very useful in, in dealing with people and dealing with production, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, has anyone actually said, gee, um, all your military experience has been such, such a useful tool in our business with you? Yeah, Jimmy and that realise it, and that's, that's something that I, I'm extremely thankful for. And I think it's a, a sort of a, a changing trend now with employers is that realising that you might not have the technical skills in that industry, but you've got other skills that you've developed over years in the military that are extremely valuable. Um, and then we can teach you the industry and teach you, you know, the bits and bobs about what how it works. But these other things take years to develop and, and are super valuable. So, and I think Jimmy was, um, you know, he's seen that and he's seen that, uh, that I had these other skills in, in you know, management and leadership and organization and, and all sorts of things. And, and then he's sort of like, all right, but I can teach you the whiskey part as we go, you know, mm-hmm. um, so, and that's always an ongoing process. And the staff have been um, incredibly understanding and, and, you know, it's two way conversation with them as well, because, you know, now I'm managing like a cafe and you know, I've never uh, managed or had anything to do with a cafe in my life, except drinking coffee at one. So, you know, the cafe manager there, she's very patient and she's very much always bringing me up to speed on, on things that I need to know. And, yeah, you know, I've gone, gone and done barista courses and all sorts of stuff that I never thought I'd be doing when I was in the regiment. But now, yeah, yeah another part of, uh, you know, reason I love working here is at the Whippersnapper is I just, you know, get the freedom to um, be creative and 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 you know, do things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to. And one of the initiatives I was able to start um, with help from Jimmy and the boys was the Whippersnapper Veterans Club. So this sort of was born out of when I did discharge, the hardest part was the camaraderie, the mateship. That was what I missed. That was gone. It wasn't, you know, shooting down the back or jumping out of planes or anything like that. It was the, it was the mateship because one day you're working with your best mates every day and then the next day you're not and you sort of feel a bit isolated and you're on your own. So 
decided to create this uh, veterans club, which is basically a community, you know, where we offer discounts and whatnot for the distillery. But the idea is we put on events um, for veterans and they come together and it's basically an excuse for veterans to come together and either catch up with old mates or meet new people with uh, like experiences. So, you know, we put these events on for free so they don't cost anything. We put on food. You know, the next one we've got planned is the Mother's Day brunch. So it's a, you know, breakfast brunch for veterans and their mothers, you know, and it's, so it's a real family orientated. And I have to give a shout out to the Legacy WA because they um, are sponsoring us for that event. It, it was just another sort of initiative that was, um, I, I was really passionate about. No, look, that, that's a fantastic story, mate. Well done. Can you tell us about Wandering Warriors and your involvement there? It kind of leads on I'm talking about the educating employers about the benefits of hiring a veteran. So Wandering Warriors is a veteran support organisation that specifically deals with um, helping ex-SOCOMAN or ex-Special Forces members, uh, albeit support staff or operators, transition, mainly focus on the transitioning period to from special forces to the private sector, uh, which is a very difficult transition. I got interested in it because it's a very, very good opportunity. They offer education, so fully funded scholarships, employment opportunities. You know, there's respite, welfare, and also some mentoring type functions as well that they, they do. They were initially established over in Queensland. Um, believe it or not, through the SA Association branch over in Queensland as a fundraising sort of organisation to raise money for other organisations. But eventually the, the Wandering Warriors, just over a number of years and the hard work from a lot of different people, uh, developed into what it is now. And it's a public company now with a registered charity and has functions in, in education, employment, respite and mentoring and, and now welfare as well. The only thing was there was nothing here in WA because a lot of guys, I guess, get out of the regiment and then they go and settle um, over east because that's where they're from. But I was from Perth or from WA, so I thought, you know what, why don't we try and start something here? Uh, so I've been you know, chatting with the guys over east and you know, Quinton Masson's the CEO and Dan Parker, the COO, and they've been incredibly helpful in just helping me uh, try and create relationships and build, build a structure here to assist Special Forces veterans to transition when they do want to get out and settle in WA, and I can really give them that sort of leg up. Ryan, if you um, reflect, you know, today, because you're only 37 now, but, you know, you were a young guy at 24, you started the Army Reserve, and then you went to the ultimate, you know, you got in with the SAS, and you spent a lot of time with the SAS. You left them and, and you've succeeded in, in creating this new role for yourself in the distillery, which is wonderful. What's your reflection upon your time in the Army? Yeah, definitely a lot to reflect on. And, and there's a few points there uh, that I'd like to make. Sort of my experiences made me realise that anything's possible and anything's achievable if, if you know you work hard and put your mind to it. And the, the fear of failure is something I've dealt with my whole life as well is that you know, sort of that imposter syndrome and that, you know, being scared of failure. So, and changing my mindset to, to be more like, you know what, well, failure is a, a natural part of life and it is actually something to learn and grow from. So that's something that I've sort of taken away from my career as well. And, and you know, it's still something that, that happens today, you know, when, when I fail in something, it's always hard and, you know, but being able to turn that into to a, something that's, you know, worthwhile and grow from. 
in terms of my deployments and and you know and my experiences overseas and and I always at the time it was great feeling being part of it being part of something bigger than yourself being part of something that's making a difference and I think that's something that drew me to the military to start with was being part of something that was bigger than yourself um so being over there in Afghanistan you know it was very much a feeling of you're a part of something that was bigger than you and you were making a difference you know we're fighting the enemy on their soil not not on ours you know and started to see you know I did some time up in Kabul as well and started to see women walking around without burqas or or anything on on their own in the streets you know which would never have happened years before and unfortunately wouldn't be happening now either but at the time you know it made you feel like a bit oh we are making a difference you know women are getting educated and these sort of things are happening we're rebuilding schools and, and and everything like that as well that's where it became incredibly difficult to see you know what happened i guess in afghanistan with the withdrawal and obviously naturally everyone who served there would be asking themselves well what was the point you know so i am a little bit disappointed in the way the way it's gone and and to see it revert back to you know worse than what it was before we went there but you know i i try to focus on the good points and the good we did do at that time uh and and the things we were able to achieve and the lives we were able to affect and make better at that time and that's kind of the the areas that uh, i choose to focus on when i reflect and think about my time you're a guy that basically people doubted you but you didn't doubt yourself you got in there and you started at the bottom and you went to the top mate you're a hero and you're a winner we've really enjoyed talking to you today and we really appreciate your service so Ryan Wilson, thank you for being with us today on Life on the Line. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm Angus Horden, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. Our thanks go to Ryan for coming on the show. Be sure to look up Wandering Warriors online, as well as Whippersnapper Distillery. For more stories about working dogs, listen to another former SAS operator share his experiences back in Season 2 in number 36, Mark Donaldson, VC. People will die. It might be you. It might be your mate. It might be the brand new guy. It's going to happen at some stage because there's lots of bullets that fly around or there's, there's dangerous work that we do. And also check out Explosive Detection Dog Handler from the Special Operations Engineer Regiment in Season 3, Number 51, Mark Noble. You feel more at home over there than you do here. There you're doing your job, you're you're trained to do it, you're doing it every day. You come back here and you sort of feel like you're sitting in limbo. You just want to get back over and keep doing what you're there to do. Find us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTLPod and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music, US Radio by The Externals. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.
Just like 